yeah, Chris here, and you're about to hear an episode where we uh, had a wonderful conversation with Mr. Ed Hooks, who very graciously came on the show to talk to us. Uh, but I just wanted to give you a quick heads up that the um, we had a few technical issues, to put it mildly. The good news is that we were able to basically save it all, but some of the audio quality isn't as good as it could be, and there are a few issues. So sorry about that, but it's still worth listening to very much. And while I'm here, if you would like to help us make more episodes, higher quality episodes, and keep the standards higher, and hopefully avoid technical issues in future, then you might like to consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash animation for adults, and you can chip in just a couple of dollars a month and help us produce more content and get extra episodes and bonus episodes and episodes before anyone else as well. Okay, I'm going to shut up now before my voice gives up entirely. So, here's the show. I hope you enjoy it. Podcast, the official podcast for animationforadults.com, and welcome to episode 60. Uh, my, my name is Rachel, and joining me today are the usual cohorts, Chris. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Dan. Hi. And Yvonne. Hello. <laughs> and also, today we have a special guest, uh, the one, the only, Ed Hooks. Hello. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you. You've been a following our podcast for quite a while and we've been very appreciative for your advice and on uh, how to make the podcast better and just great having talks with you about uh, animation for adults so I wanted to try and see if we could have us all talk about that today with uh, what defines animation for adults but before we get into that we uh, just want to give another give the microphone over to Ed and just kind of basically introduce himself to anyone who may not know him so Go ahead, Ed. The floor is yours. Okay. Well, thank you. Well, first of all, I, I just want to thank you for uh, for having me here. I'm a, I'm a fan of the show, and and not only am I a fan, I think what you're doing is important, and uh, I'm I'm uh, honored to be here. Thank and uh, I also, uh, uh, before uh, time goes by, I just want to give a uh, a shout out to uh, Yvonne here with her uh, animation nights in New York because uh, she's also doing something very, very important, I think. Yeah, yeah. And she's doing a great job with it. And uh, I just uh, I just think all of you guys really deserve a, a, a applause. If there was an audience here, I'd, uh, I'd lead it. Uh, <laughs> thank, thank you. you. <laughs> so my, uh, my background is that I was... Uh, an actor for 30 years, and uh, also I taught acting classes uh, during that time, to professional level acting classes. And uh, and in 1996, I was invited to teach animators for the first time uh, at DreamWorks PDI. Uh, they were working on the movie Ants at that time. That was had Woody Allen uh, doing the lead voice there. And uh, I had to figure out how to teach animators. I, um, I went in there and, uh, and I really sort of screwed it up at first because I tried to teach the animators the way that I was teaching actors. 
And uh, then I discovered that you just didn't do that. And uh, I, we had to get the um, animators all together. And I, so I told them, I said, look, I said, I understand, I think, something about acting, but I don't think I understand much about animation at all. And you need to show me how you do what you do. And if I can understand that, then maybe I can bring to bear what I know in a way that'll be useful to you. And so they gave me a chair to push around and I sat next to the animators and we talked and I watched until I had my big aha moment <laughs> and realized what the difference was between animators and actors. The main difference is that actors work in the present moment and animators don't have a present moment. Animators have 24 frames make a second or an illusion of a present moment. So once I realized that, then I said to myself, okay, how do you teach acting theory to adults and people who really need to understand acting, but who don't want to be acting on Broadway and don't want to be in movies with Robert De Niro? I, what do you do? And so I was, I had the opportunity to experiment, frankly, and that's what I did. And I worked out a way of teaching them that uh, involved showing them clips and deconstructing the clips from films, showing them how acting works, uh, lecture discussion, very little uh, actual on-your-feet stuff because it was the on-your-feet stuff that, uh, that they were skittish about. So after all that was over, I, uh, uh, I wrote uh, a book about it. I wrote Acting for Animators, which was first published in 2001. And uh, the book was uh, embraced by the industry and... Uh, and uh, I suppose that everything what you're getting today is uh, the the tail end of that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we've uh, I've now taught at most of the major uh, animation studios and video game companies and uh, around the world, international. I teach around the around the world. So um, so that's me, and I've. Uh, um, uh, I've read. No, I have a. I have a new book that'll be out uh, in uh, December called "Craft Notes for Animators: A Perspective on 21st Century Career." Very and cool. um, yeah, I know. So I'm. It's. Uh, <laughs> I'm very, very lucky to do what I do. I work with some of the most creative and talented people in the world, and. Uh, I'm, uh, I count my blessings all the time. I, I don't take it for granted. It's a great privilege to do what I do. So that's who I am. I'm, uh, I live in Los Angeles right now, and my wife and I are uh, just about to move to uh, Lisbon, Portugal. Ah, that's a big move. <laughs> it's a big move. <laughs> it's uprooting and, and transplanting a, a, like a, one of those big... Uh, big trees and big sur, you know, it's uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> moving international is a big thing, mm -hmm. but uh, we're having fun with it. We, it should be, the move should be complete within the next uh, month or so. All right. 
That's excellent. Yeah, I mean, you're, I was able to see your, your talk at um, CGCon in Montreal. <laughs> of all places. Oh. <laughs> it sort of gave me, an ex the CGCon was moved. It was going to be in New York City. And, um, and, and I was just like, oh, well, I haven't been to Montreal ever. So it was sort of an excuse for me to go there. <laughs> but, um, but it, it was uh, su such an inspiring experience. And um, I just kept on talking about it um, like the moment after it happened, I told everyone I could find who didn't know already uh, about you know what you're doing. Um, you know, I would lead them to your website because um, it was so inspiring. I mean, it's just one of those experiences experiences um, that make you want to get immediately back to work <laughs> with enthusiasm. <laughs> Thank you very much. I I care a lot about uh, about animation and the and, and the animators who uh, I work with. And it's, it's a great privilege. It really is. I mean, I'm just a, a very, very lucky guy. Yeah, but you're bringing so much value. I mean, you're doing frame-by-frame um, -frame analysis of full feature-length films now, right? Yes, because I have found that that's a, a very good way for people to have a real-world application. I mean, we can sit and talk about... Uh, theory, acting theory. I'm happy to do that. I can do that most of the day about acting theory and principles. But at some point, somebody has to actually put animation up and say, okay, does this work? If not, why not? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, it's, uh, you know, when you're animating, most, most of uh, what you do it's going to be pretty evident what the character is doing. It's clear. But uh, sometimes you get things where it's not so clear. And uh, you should be able to, uh, to figure it out. You should be able to, f to find out why, you know, why. You should know why something works and why it doesn't. And so I try with these uh, going through the films and showing clips and, and getting the people in the class to explain to me why the scenes work or why scenes don't work. Uh, I, I just found it to be a very useful uh, t teaching tool. And so I do include film analysis in my uh, books. And, I, and, and as time has gone by, they've become more and more detailed. I, I do them now with complete with time code. And uh, so if somebody has the, has the book, what they do is get a hold of the DVD or find it online, and, and then they can follow along with my notes and watch, and then they can really get a sense of the uh, how the acting and the performance is working in there. That's really interesting. That's, exa that's exactly what I did, actually. Um, your book, Ed, was really, really helpful to me, personally, as a student. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, actually, you came to uh, my school uh, in Bournemouth, uh, uh -huh. I think in 2000. It's a great school. Yeah, thanks. And I mean, and uh, your uh, your your lecture that you gave and your visit sort of gave me this new understanding of what acting for animation was. Because I mean, it's kind of learning animation is one thing, and learning acting for animation is another yeah. whole way of thinking. Really, it's not really about movement. It's not about how fast some moving which seems to be what anima animators kind of get preoccupied with sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and your approach to, you know, um, 
objective and obstacles uh really driving like behavior was something which um yeah i found completely invaluable well it moves it it keeps everyone away from cliche right so and and they can delve into their own um well of of knowledge um just from being a human being Mm. it instills confidence too i think i mean what you're doing is very important (laughs) (laughs) absolutely Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's what it is, is is technique. That's what you call technique. You when you know, you're animating a sequence, and something isn't working, you should be able to figure it out pretty quickly, you shouldn't just have to pull it out of the air and say, well, maybe this works better if I do this, maybe not. There's concrete ways to figure out why something is working. Uh, if it's character animation, you, you, you ask your character, well, number one, number one, a, a very important thing I, I can say right here is that everybody has heard this expression that the animator is an actor with a pencil. It's a very popular expression, and it's true in a sense, but it's not literally true. The actor in an animation is the character on the screen. Mm -hmm. From the audience's perspective, the actor is Mickey Mouse. It's not Walt Disney. And so the animator's relationship with the character is one of empathetic direction. What you have to do as an animator is to teach your character and help your character be a good actor. And so you have to have, as an, as an animator, you have to have a solid understanding of, how, of acting in order to be able to teach it and help and direct your character. But it's the character that's the actor. And uh, I, I, I just think that, so you should be able to, at any time, freeze frame a character and say to that character, what are you doing? And the character should be able to answer in theatrical terms. And in the end, the theatrical terms are, this is the objective that I'm pursuing. This is the action that I'm playing to achieve that objective. And this is the obstacle that I'm overcoming. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. Mm. If you ask your character, what are you doing? And the character says, well, I just feel sad. You say, okay, and what are you doing? Yeah, but I just feel bad. I just am sad right now. Yes, so what are you doing? The character needs to be doing something. And that doesn't mean necessarily a whole lot of physical action. You can have not much physical action. But but the character needs to have something that they're doing. And so really what acting for animators is that I teach is really technique. It's, it's what to do when you don't know what to do, when the script is unclear. Uh, you need to know how to, to make it work. You need to know how to give a character an objective if there's not one there, if it's not really evident what the character's doing. That's really amazing. 
You know, I have a question for you. I just want to squeeze it in real before. <laughs> Go not... ahead. Okay. So I, every time I hear um, a podcast or an interview with an actor that um, I really like, for instance, like Alan Alda, there was a really terrific interview with him recently. Um, I think it might have been WTF. Anyway. Oh, I heard that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every time I hear him speak or, or some other actor who, who I really love, I always, you know, think about how that could apply to animation, right? Because there are so many... Well, it, there are different ways to approach acting, right? And and then, but Ellen Ola said something specifically that kind of made my head spin. And he talked about how how he he can act for a certain number of generations. He was just talking about um, his place right now and his role uh, in, in the uh, Lucy Case um, show. Now and he's such a great actor. Um, um, talked about how his acting choices are maybe different because of his experience and um, his generation. And w when he's acting sometimes with uh, people who are a lot younger, he's, he's kind of like, you know, why are like, where they're shouting, like, why are they shouting? Or sometimes they'll be really too subtle or too, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. there's a difference in an acting choice. And his point was that he was thinking, and he was being, you know, a little, he was being very humble too, but he was saying that, um, you know, he wonder, he thinks that you act for your own generation. And I just find that fascinating in a way. I, I don't know how true that necessarily is, but, but um, does that, I mean, can you speak to that with regard to, um, you know, animators with different maybe levels of experience and um, life experience? And I don't know, it seems to all kind of relate to, relate in a way to me. Yeah, like I should. Well, I like Alan Alda. Yeah. And, uh, and I think he's a talented uh, actor. It's, uh, uh, here's, here's the thing that you need to know, is that acting, acting really has not changed for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. uh, longer than that. Aristotle, Aristotle said in the Poetics that every human action has a purpose. Aristotle said that. Wow. All of acting theory, all of acting is really based upon that. You have a script, you're playing a part as an actor, the character is saying something or doing something, and so your job as an actor is to say, why? What's the purpose? And there's many different schools of acting, different techniques, people come at it, but it all comes down to the same thing, which is to find the purpose. What's the purpose? What's the objective? What is the character doing? Now, yeah. yeah, go ahead. That's wonderful. I mean, and honestly, he was kind of saying something like that just with approach to lines. Um, I guess uh, part of the thing he mentioned is, you know, like you go up to order a coffee, but people don't, you just don't go up and say the line as you're getting the cup of coffee. There are all these other things at play. You're trying to affect the world around you, even if it's just, you know, about your interaction with the person, with the barista. Um, of course. So, um, yeah, he, he hit on exactly that. That's, that's, uh, that's wonderful uh, uh, way of saying it. Yeah, and and you know, I learned. <laughs> I was I went to school. I uh, was first taught at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York, and that's a wonderful school. I learned a lot, but I learned more about acting. And this has to bear with what you said about Alan Alda. I learned more about acting doing bad plays off Broadway 
<laughs> uh, <laughs> because I did some 35, maybe 40 plays off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway. And here's the thing, is that when you're in school, you're working with Shakespeare and Tennessee Williams and uh, Arthur Miller and Beckett and Pinter. You're working with proven playwrights and what I call kitchen-tested material. <laughs> and your job as an actor is simply to find it. You know that it works. All you got to do is find the key. Okay? Now, when you get out into the real world and you start working with original material, uh, there's a good chance that it simply doesn't work. There's a good chance that it's badly written. Uh, and, and I learned by doing these plays that the audience doesn't care about that. What they see is the actor on stage and, uh, and it's your fault. And, <laughs> and, and so I became very good at taking uh, uh, a scene that might not be well written and making it seem as though it was well written. And uh, I could do this with almost anything. I could. It's almost like a almost like a hat trick. Um, and and later when I went to Hollywood and started working on the television shows, this particular skill is why I was able to make a living from acting, from playing supporting roles, because so much of what television is, is uh, badly written. <laughs> and, uh, and they write for the stars, and, they don't, and the, the supporting uh, characters often are just out there for exposition, for, uh, for, for uh, information. They, the star bounces off of them, and so, I was very good at taking these roles that had nothing to them and actually making them seem like there was something there. Now, Alan Alda is an extremely experienced actor, and he knows that all actors, if you get into a cast that has six actors in the cast, they probably, five of them, have different kind of background and training than you do. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you learn as an actor is to play off of the reality of whatever uh, the other people are doing. And, uh, and Alan Alda simply comes from uh, an older generation. He's probably worked with more of the, of the, of the established kitchen-tested material. Uh, than others. He's also been a star for a very long time. And so uh, material has been written especially for him. And so, you know, he gets into a production and he's working with very young actors and uh, they just don't have that. Um, then they're probably partially intimidated by him, frankly. You know, it's uh, I mean, it, it is disconcerting to act with stars because you look at them and they're a star, you know? <laughs> <laughs> already recognize them. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, acting is acting is acting. The principles of it are the same. It's finding purpose. And, uh, and, 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 uh, and there's different kinds of acting, the training that people come at. There's the method, there's Meisner technique, 
these are these are having to do with with actual acting. I personally studied some with uh, a woman named Uta Hagen, who was uh, a very famous acting teacher for a while. And uh, but everybody's got a different way, and and you just learn to that none of it's wrong. Everybody's just got a different way. And the, the, the thing is to be able to have some kind of technique that works for you. Right. And Absolutely. when I'm teaching acting for animators, I don't want everybody to just do what I say. I want people to understand the principles and then make it work for themselves uh, in their own way. And uh, I, I think it's just, it, it, it fits with what you said about Alan Alda, I think. Yeah, that's fascinating. That is, that is true, actually, because um, Ed, your book, I think it was Acting and Animation. Mm -hmm. Acting for Animators is the name of my books. But... Oh, sorry, sorry. It, 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 was, it, was, it, was, it was a particular book that you did that was, um, I think it was, you were analyzing performances from different animated movies. You know what? You've got a better memory than I do. I did. <laughs> I did. That is one of my books. It was, <laughs> it's, uh, the book is acting in animation, a look at 12 films. Exactly. That, yes. Um, and, and the fact that it was, it was, it's a variety of films. You've got like Iron Giant, Tarzan, I think a Wallace and Gromit film, oh, Spirited man. Away. And <laughs> when you look at them, they look like, you know, if you looked at a screenshot from each movie, you'd think it was a different style. Mm -hmm. And the style of movement in those movies is kind of slightly different and the, the you know um how far like the notches um on exaggeration are, are turned uh, you know vary but mm -hmm. i think what you're saying is those sort of um those principles are consistent throughout uh yes. regardless of the style they could be i tell you something about generations though generations of animators and uh, and, and, and some of this actually I, it comes out in that in that book that I, this, the, the, the craft notes for animators you know Walt Disney Walt Disney's big contribution to animation was that he gave Mickey Mouse a brain <laughs> uh, that was that was what he did once Mickey Mouse had a, a brain a human brain then the mouse could think, could form opinions, could develop values, and those values could be expressed as emotion. That was a huge breakthrough back then, 1936, 37. It was, it was enough of a breakthrough to where that alone would sell movie tickets. Uh, just that, uh, because people wanted to see it on screen, this sort of magic with the characters that seemed to come to life. But, and this is really important for, for I think all of your listeners, is that Walt Disney had to figure out acting from scratch. When he did what he did, Konstantin Stanislavski's work had not been published yet in English. Uh, there were no textbooks. There was nothing. There was a, a there was a couple of little thin little books that had been put out by some people who had studied with uh, uh, Stanislavski, but there was almost no literature. And 
Disney and his wonderful animators, they didn't, they had to figure it out on, and, and, and so what they figured out was that, uh, they that how empathy works they they called it they wanted the audience to care for the character and they figured out that in order for the audience to care that the that the characters had to had to be emotional they had to show emotion what Walt Disney did not understand yet was that emotion itself is not actable Emotion is an automatic value response. Emotion tends to lead to action. Acting is doing. It's not acting is feeling. Although acting takes place in an arena of emotion, you cannot act emotion. And even today, Animators struggle with this because they're, many of them are taught to be to make sure their character has personality, and you know, Interesting. when when analyzing films, sometimes I look at the DVD and I listen to the director's uh, no, uh, you know, narration uh, that goes along with these things, and many times there will be a scene on the screen where the character is expressing emotion of some kind. They're very happy, they're very sad, whatever. And the director is saying, look at that performance. That is such a wonderful performance. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, the character is not doing anything. The character is simply expressing emotion. We need, we, you can do that, but you can't just hang your hat there. That's not where it stops. The character has to do something. And uh, understanding that is, is, a, is a, really, a, a really critical thing. I, let me tell you a little story, and I'll ask you a question, okay? I'm gonna put this to you as a question. Go for it. Okay. I was uh, working at uh, an animation event and uh, I had, uh, as, as happens at these events, this happened to be one in England, uh, up at Animex is where it was. And um, what they do is they had dinners for the speakers. They put you together with other people, presenters. And my dinner mate that night was a guy who introduced himself as being uh, the head of animation for Big Hero 6 at Disney and I he didn't know that I had recently written an article that was fairly critical of, <laughs> <laughs> of Big Hero 6 it hadn't been published yet but I decided not to uh, to ruin his dinner <laughs> and <laughs> this is a true story and uh, and so I, I said to him, I said, oh, I said, you know what my favorite, my favorite se sequence in that movie is? And he said, no, what is that? And I said, it's, it, it's where um, the, uh, what, is the, what is the inflated character? I'm forgetting his name Baymax. now. Baymax. Uh, Baymax, yeah. It's where, uh, it's where Baymax gets drunk and actually he starts deflating 
and the power runs out of him, and Hero has to take him back to plug him in, has to take him to the house. You, you guys remember that sequence? Yeah. Yes, very well. <laughs> yeah, and it was a brilliant sequence. I thought from beginning to end, when he starts losing his power until that thing is over, I don't know how long it lasts, maybe five minutes. It's a long sequence, and I thought it was really excellent, just top of the line. Mm -hmm. And so he thanked me for my compliment, and then he offered, he said, well, you know, it wasn't always like that. And I said, oh, no. And he said, no. He said, originally, we had Baymax in a shopping cart. <laughs> and, and he said, uh, and, and he said, but somebody at some point there, one of the story people uh, took him out of the shopping cart, and it just worked so much better. And I said, right, it, yeah, I can, yeah, it would, I, you, you know why? And, and he said, well, it was funnier. And I said, right, it would be, you, you, you know why? And he said, we just all agreed. It just was funnier this way. Now, I know why, but he didn't understand that particular guy did not understand the principle, the principle of acting. Just based on what I've told you so far in this conversation, you should know what's wrong with Baymax being in the shopping cart. Can one of you tell me? Um, I'll take a whack at it. Um, well, obviously it's, well, um, my guess would be basically because of the fact that he is in being in the shopping cart that takes away his uh, trying to move in spite of his, you know, the fact that he's low power and, you know, not functioning as well, but you still don't get to see the effort he's trying to put into and in trying to move to get to where he needs to go to. Exactly. And Hero's hero struggling with him to get him there. You got it. If you put Baymax in the shopping cart, if you freeze frame Baymax, because remember I said you should be able to freeze frame a character and say, what are you doing? If you were to freeze frame Baymax in a shopping cart and say, what are you doing? He would say he wouldn't have an answer because all he was doing was waiting for Hero to get him back to the house, to push him in the shopping cart, to get him back to the house, to plug him in. Well, he, that right there, as soon as you ask a character, what are you doing? And the character doesn't have an answer, then you know what needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how much they spent over there at Disney animating this thing with Baymax in the shopping cart, but it was wasted money, totally wasted money. And if they had understood freeze frame, what are you doing? This is my objective, this is my action, this is the obstacle. Nobody would have ever put him in a shopping cart in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so it's, th this is what I mean by acting theory being technique, so that you're able to say, you know, what's, what's right, what's wrong, how does this work, what is the purpose? Every character should be able to answer the question, what are you doing? Emotion is not actable. 
Thinking tends to lead to conclusions. Emotion tends to lead to action. Also, let me just say this about action. All, all action involves physical action to some degree, but it doesn't have to involve a whole lot. If you look at Japanese animation, for example, you often will see seconds go by of stillness on screen, and yet you still are very interested. You're held with what's going on. Uh, Miyazaki, uh, you know, is mas uh, masterful with this. Uh, uh, the uh, it, 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 Miyazaki, let me, okay, I've got two thoughts going on at one time. You have to forgive me. That's okay. The, <laughs> okay. Uh, Miyazaki was asked one time, what is the difference between his animation and Western animation? And he said, in order to answer the question, he began to clap his hands. And he said, when you, when I clap my hands, what you hear is the sound of the clap. And he said, you don't hear what's in between the sound of the clap. He said, but in Japan, we have a name for what's in between the sound of the clap. We call it ma, like mama, right. ma. And he said, Western animators tend to be afraid of ma. They think that if you're that unless you make the sound of the clap, you're going to lose your audience. And he said, I disagree with that. He said, I think if you fill ma with thinking, emotion, intention, that you will not lose your audience. Mm -hmm. I agree 100% with Miyazaki on this. And if I can, here's the thing like, okay, Rachel. If I were to, if I were to ask you to lie down on the floor and pretend to be a digital character yourself, to, I want you to be as still as it's possible for you to be so that you appear not even to be living. Okay, I know you could do that. Now, as soon as you get into that position and you're as still as possible, I say to you, okay, now, holding that, I want you to multiply 323 times 64. Your eyes would move. You're not going to be able to compute it without your eyes moving. Mm -hmm. That little bit of movement is all you would need. That would be theatrically valid because your objective would be to find the answer to the question, the answer, the answer to the arithmetic problem. The action is to do the arithmetic. You have conflict with your situation because you're holding still and trying to be a digital person. That is theatrically valid with almost no physical movement, very little physical movement. An audience will be fixated on that. They'll watch you for a long time doing that. And the, Miyazaki and, and the Japanese uh, animators understand this much better than the uh, American uh, animators, I think. 
And, uh, but it's a really good point. So animation does involve movement, but it doesn't have to involve gesturing and gesticulating on every single syllable of every single word. It doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. It's, that's really true. I think, um, <laughs> I think the issue sometimes stems from, oh, I'm an animator, I make things move. And they kind of think, well, I'm gonna, I got to earn my paycheck. <laughs> I've got to make things move because if I'm seen, I, I, I think in the moment, you know, when you're working on something, it is easy to, to lapse and to think, ah, oh, this needs to be moving. And in a, in a, it, it's obviously wrong. But in a sense, to think, if I'm not moving this, I'm being a bit lazy. Even if it is in fact not lazy because you're thinking. Um, you know, very hard about the overall effect of the performance and the behavior. I mm-hmm. think that's kind of how that stuff comes about, the overacting. And it's really easy to do. Yes, it is. I tell you something else, too. You, you, guys, you guys will appreciate this. I mean, I look at a lot of what they call these 11-second uh, animations. Oh, yeah. You know, people send me these things uh, because they're a favorite teaching tool. And what they do is they pull dialogue, usually off of some YouTube uh, clip from a live action movie or something. And animators, the animator, especially in the West, dialogue is usually recorded before the animation is done. So the animator sits there with these headphones on and then makes the uh, on-screen character fit the voice. Mm-hmm. This leads to the conclusion that the voice, the words, must be the most important thing because the animation has to fit those words. In fact, acting has almost nothing to do with words. Our sense of sight is far more powerful than our sense of hearing. And what you what you show an audience overrides what they hear. And I I wish that more animators understood this, how powerful they are. Uh, An animator is is actually in the driver's seat, even though the marketing for these movies that you see, they'll feature, they talk about this star, that star. It's all marketing stuff. Yeah, totally. You know what's so funny is at... um... The Love and Second Club um, has sort of a partnership with um, Animation Mentor, which I, I attended Animation, a bunch of their programs. I love Animation Mentor. But um, we did as an exercise as part of our um, acting and animation um, class. And basically, it was just that, like taking a, a piece of video from a film and then um, and then doing a bunch of of takes um, in front of a camera like in our own kitchens or whatever Um, but the cool thing about it and the thing that really I think um, points to what you're saying is um, you know because like for instance from personal experience you know I wound up doing like you know a hundred takes or whatever (laughs) because I'm not because I'm not an actor but what it does it wore me down to the point that um by the time i was acting actually thinking about the dialogue i was so just divorced from the actual voice that i was um i broken myself down and i was just acting like i normally would you know what i mean i was creating this other sense of a character it was my own interpretation and that's what i wound up using yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, animation mentor is good stuff. I mean, I have a number of friends that are mentors for animation mentor, and it's a, you know it's it's a, it's a really good organization, and the whole idea of mentoring people is a great. That's fine. That's wonderful, but unless somebody tells a new animator that the visuals are actually more important than the words. Yeah. Uh, they have to figure this out for themselves. And that's, uh, I just see a lot of times, I see animators struggling, trying to make their their animation words. And it's, uh, animators are just more powerful than sometimes they think they are. That's amazing. Yeah, we talk about awesome. that a lot. Yeah, the sort of trying to refocus. I mean, I think that's kind of the larger goal even of Animation Nights New York, <laughs> is to sort of um, make the focus sort of on the people doing production more than anything else and kind of get the word about word out about, um, uh, you know, what's involved. Sure, sure. i tell you something else. It, uh, that, that, and this is a point that it's worth, worth making here, is that, is that theatrical reality Theatrical reality is not the same thing as regular reality, okay? It's not enough just to make sure your character has the illusion of life, okay? The character actually has to act, and, and acting has structure to it. Uh, in, in regular reality, that's what you have at the mall. That's what you have at the supermarket. It's what you have on a street corner. Nobody wants to pay to see regular reality. <laughs> Theatrical reality is compressed in time and space. And it's, it has to, everything to do with storytelling because you're working with limitations and you're only showing the parts of reality that are essential for showing information about the character and story development. And it's all structured. And this is a really important thing for you to know as an animator when you're trying to work on your acting. It's not enough just to get the character to seem to have life. That's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. That's actually, I, I do think of that a lot um, when when thinking about uh, when, uh, particularly Disney animators have this real like preoccupation, like with the uh, illusion of life being important, and they'll always marvel like, oh, you can feel the character breathing. Mm -hmm. um, and as sort of um, CG animation has has evolved, like the it's true like the movement has become a lot more sophisticated um oh, yes. because of all of these layers of uh, of movement that can be added um but it but it's true that uh it doesn't mean anything unless it's unless it's uh, really uh, an expression of a behavior which is clearly in pursuit of an objective as you yeah know, as you yeah you know, well you know, we can talk about empathy uh, if, if, if you want. We can talk about that because, you know, in Walt Disney's day, they still didn't have that word 
empathy. They were still using the word sympathy most of the time when what they meant was empathy. Uh, literally, uh, sympathy means feeling for, and empathy literally means feeling into. So uh, when they were talking in, in Disney's animators, when they talk about the audience caring about a character, they were really talking about empathy. When, when you feel sympathy for someone, you can feel sorry for them. But when you, when you empathize, you recognize in this other person or in this character a reflection of your own self. Mm-hmm. You see yourself. Shakespeare said in Hamlet, in the advice to the players, he said that, that the actor should hold the mirror up to nature. Hold the mirror up to nature. And what he, what he meant was that the audience, he was saying the same thing. The audience needs to see themselves reflected in the behavior of the character uh, in order to empathize, in order to care. You hold the mirror up to nature. And one of the, it, it's one of the great frustrations for me uh, as, I, as I teach, and I, I, I see a lot, of, uh, a lot of animators that, that, that want to, they'll say, the character is behaving naturally, like in nature. And I say, yes, but this is storytelling. Hmm. We need to be selective about what part of it we're showing, because story everything comes down to story and you simply are using this art form and animation is an art form by the way it's 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 an art form and it's a different art form than acting they 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 overlap they have something in common but acting and animation are two different art forms uh and uh but but your 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 acting needs to be structured to reflect the story and when you animate what you're doing is you're saying to the audience i understand this about how this character is surviving i understand this about this character's uh emotions and so you're actually communicating with an audience when you're animating it's a two-way it's a two-way uh, thing. It's just that you're not there live with them, like a live actor in the, in, you know, in the live theater. You're not there. You're working through a distance, but it still is, uh, it still is an exchange. That the audience is not a, a lurker. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, You're right about it. it goes back to. I mean, you always sort of say that the uh, act, animators are shamans or actor. And yeah, that's a quote that or that you see a lot. Yep. And yeah. um, it reminds me. I always, I always think of Joseph Campbell. You know, um, the mm-hmm. power of myth, and um, here, it, oh, and the um, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, that Werner Herzog movie. Um, how, did you see that? It was amazing. It, um, basically, their cave drawings and sequential drawings that um, were were. I mean, caves that were older than we originally even thought existed, mm-hmm. and, and these drawings look so fresh and new, like they were made yesterday. And what they discovered is that they were created to be seen by torchlight. So there would be an element of um, 
almost early filmmaking in yeah. a way. Um, it's amazing. Um, it, it's it's sort of it speaks to all of that, you know. Um, of course. The, um, yeah. Well, I think Campbell yeah. like kind of talks about storytelling like originating like around you know yeah. telling stories mm -hmm. around a fire, right. and, well, and and the main purpose of it being empathy. Sure. It's. I tell you, look, we are storytelling animals. <laughs> this is one of the this. We learn most of our survival skills as humans from story. That's what we do. We're the only animal that can do this. No other animal can do it. It's uh, uh, if you watch your your dog or your cat uh, when they're playing, you'll see them actually rehearsing survival skills. Your your cat will stalk the prey and then will pounce on the prey. You know, they'll wrestle, they'll do this. They're, they're rehearsing survival skills, all the ones that they need as an animal. We humans have these very large brains. And if you follow evolution, evolutionary psychology, then you know that everything we have has a purpose, including our large brain. And we are the only animal that in juvenile play can pretend to be somebody other than who we are. And uh, this, is, this is a survival mechanism. We're the only animal that can empathize with a character that doesn't exist in reality. We can read a book, a novel, and be very affected by a character in the book. It doesn't exist. <laughs> your 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 dog or your cat can't do that. There's no other animal can do this. It's uh, uh, and and also let me put let me explain this about empathy about how empathy works is that number one we only empathize with emotion. You you can't empathize with thinking. You empathize with emotion. Emotion are is defined as an automatic value response. So uh, you've got seven core emotions and, uh, you know, happy, sad, angry, surprise, contempt, and fear, and, uh, and one other uh, surprise. I there say that? I can't remember. There's seven of them. In, in uh, Inside Out, they had five. They used five. For some reason, they skipped... Uh, they skipped contempt and I think surprise in that movie. Yeah, I but, think they tried to combine them into different characters, into the characters that they already had, I guess. Okay, we had a bit of a minor technical glitch going. I think we had uh, just our uh, particular recording program is uh, just having a little bit of a technical issue. So we lost a bit of the recording, but uh, we're uh, also Yvonne. Unfortunately, she was able to join us for the first half, but uh, she had a pressing engagement, so she had to take off for a little bit. But we're just uh, coming right back at you with um, our main topic of discussion, uh, which is going to be uh, just you know, really what defines you know adult animation, and uh, also tied to what uh, Ed was talking about earlier and how that ties in with acting, and uh, explaining how emotions lead to actions and actions. I think, believe you also said um, in one of your. Uh, notes from your one of your master classes ed that act, acting uh, on those emotions leads to consequences and it's 
understanding the truth of those consequences that really defines what makes uh, you know maybe an adult film or at least when it comes to animation like when a film really understands you know how those actions can affect consequence that leads to a more adult understanding of the story mm-hmm well the uh, uh, thing about adults we talk about uh, adults and children if you if if you have a story to tell, you're going to tell it one way to children and another way to adults. Uh, let me just mention for a second Walt Disney, because what Walt Disney did was he made movies for kids, and then he charmed adults into seeing them also on the grounds that there is a kid in all of us. So, so when you watch Pinocchio or Dumbo, you watch these uh, Snow White, you actually regress. You, it's, it's very difficult to watch those things from an adult perspective. You become a kid again when you're watching them. Uh, I think it's really important to understand about this because especially with the very big budget Hollywood movies, uh, what they'll say, the producers and directors, they'll say, we make movies for the entire family. Yeah. Uh, this, you hear this all, all the time. But if you really study how humans develop uh, mentally and emotionally, you know that it's quite, it, it, I, wanna, I almost said it's impossible. It's not impossible. It's just very, very difficult and rare to make a story, to make a movie that appeals to both children and adults. They did it with uh, Toy Story. They did it with Monsters Incorporated. It does work. That's for the whole family. But it, uh, it's very rare, and it's very difficult. To, you can't put it on an assembly line. You can't do this three, four times a year with, uh, with these big movies. And so they say, we got movies that are made for the entire family, but really, some of them, uh, I can mention the movie, uh, for example, uh, Up, uh, is really a hybrid. It's really two movies in one. The first half of that movie is all about uh, love, romance, courting, uh, marriage, wanting to have children, not being able to have children, dreams, uh, sickness, death, and grieving. Little kids in the audience, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven, they can't really, these are not issues that children understand. Uh, so the, the kids are there sort of looking around to see what's going on. They may be uh, taken, uh, you know, into the images on screen, the color, the, the characters may be colorful, that type of thing, but they can't understand these issues. Now, in the second half of Up, then they go to Paradise Valley, and now here comes the talking dogs and uh, the bird that eats chocolate and all, all that sort of stuff. And now the kids are just really happy. Now we got something for kids, and the parents are starting to check their watch. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's so, so really what you've got is two movies in one. You had the same situation with the movie Wally, 
The first half of it is for adults, and the second half of it is for children. And the problem is that you really don't want to try to spend 200 million U.S. dollars on a movie for kids. This is, uh, and so because in Hollywood they tend not to spend less than 200 million dollars on any movie for animated movie, they have to get everybody there. They can't have anybody not come. And so they say it's for the whole family, and then they just try to put mix things in there, imagery, all of this. But if you reduce it to storytelling, you really need to identify your audience. I I tell my my students this, you know, when they're coming up with short animations that they want to enter into competitions, I say, great, come up with a subject that you care about. And then the second thing is, who do you want to tell the story to? If you've got an audience of children, then you want to structure your story for children. If it's adults, then we want for adults. I, I was I was listening to Brad Bird recently in an interview that he gave, and he said that uh, that the problem with a lot of animation is that the characters do not face their consequences. They don't have the consequences of their actions. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, this is, this is one of the hallmarks of adult-themed animation, is that the characters will face the consequences of their actions. Mm-hmm. The reason why the characters don't face the consequences of their action in so much of the big-budget Hollywood movies is because the movies are being used to sell product. They're being used to sell merchandise and theme parks and this and that. And, uh, and, And in that regard, these movies function like television commercials. Yep. And if you if you watch television commercials, you'll notice that this is also true, that the characters and the people in commercials often don't face very strong consequences. They don't get a disease that can't be cured by a non-prescription drug. You know, uh, they, 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 they have a problem with a, a furniture polish that doesn't work. I mean, it's not very heavyweight stuff in commercials because these things are designed to sell something. And I, I can tell you that my, uh, my take on this is that all around the world, I've seen the beginnings of adult animation, a lot of it coming up, and it's coming out of other countries uh, more than I see it coming out of Hollywood because in Hollywood, they're really locked into this whole thing of selling of selling merchandise with the big studios. And it's fine. I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm just saying that's what it is. And when Brad Bird says that the characters are not facing the consequences of their actions, that's an excellent point. And if you want to have adult-themed animation, and I certainly think there's a need and a market for it, then characters must face the consequences of their actions. Definitely. Does that make sense? That's, re- yeah, that's, that's, really, yeah. that's really interesting that's really, that you're sort of, sort of talking about, talking like, about like, massive, massive 
kind of sorry i think there's a bit of an echo i can kind of hear myself yeah it's the thing is with children the younger your audience the more archetypal the characters the, the heroes and the villains uh, become because we what we want to protect our children everything comes down to uh, evolution you you want to protect children so you you tell them don't ever get in the car with a with a stranger even though you know that there are some strangers that probably it's okay for them to get in the car with so you paint a dark picture you don't get in it ever ever and get in the car with a stranger and children don't know what a real villain looks like mm. adults understand that a, a, a person may look like a priest and be doing horrible things and be a real villain in this sense. Mm-hmm. Children don't know how to make these distinctions. So the younger the audience, when you're a storyteller, the younger the audience, the more archetypal should be the characters. But this whole notion of I'm making a story for the entire family, you got to be real careful with that. That's uh, because children are not miniature adults. They're children. And there's a process by which we acquire knowledge and develop values and are able to make discerning choices in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so, um, that's so funny you're, you're saying that because um, two, two things actually uh, that, that I was thinking about when you were, when you were talking, Ed, was the first was um, around about the time that The Simpsons started, they made a documentary where they were interviewing um, the producers uh, and writers, and they mentioned that uh, when they watched families watching The Simpsons, um, everyone was laughing at and reacting at different moments. Mm-hmm. And as a whole, throughout the duration of an episode, they were able to capture the uh, the sense of humor and the imagination and the hearts of everyone from six to ninety, but at different moments. And I, I think it's it's really interesting to hear you talk about the, the pursuit of that that sweet spot, which it kind of seems like you're saying doesn't actually exist because uh, at each moment you're not capturing. <laughs> the same people in exactly the same way exactly yeah. exactly and and the other thing i was thinking about just on the tail end was um actually in frozen there's a uh, spoilers for anyone who hasn't <laughs> seen frozen yet i don't know who you are how you manage that <laughs> um but yeah, but if anyone's watching it you've probably been forced to watch it by now precisely yeah, yeah. precisely um there's a character in Frozen, actually, who turns out to be um, manipulative and predatory. Um, and I remember, Ed, in your analysis of Frozen that you wrote, uh, I think, for Cartoon Brew, um, that the character of Hans is a, a really... I mean, in a way, he's a very um, manipulative character for them to have presented. Mm-hmm. Um, not just in his character was manipulative, but in in a, in a way, the trick that they played was kind of cruel, because there was nothing, um, 
there was there was nothing in the first part of his performance which was in any way tipping uh his hand even in a subtle way that is kind of noticeable even to adult uh um viewers mm-hmm. there's nothing there's no like moment where you think ah is he all he seems so there mm-hmm. should have there should have been a moment where the camera went over him and he was doing an evil look, evil glare, <laughs> kind of. Well, but, yeah, like, I, don't they, know, I don't know what that moment would have been. But. They used to do that in uh, in twenty four. They always used to be a mole, and you'd find out who the mole was, and then suddenly they'd start acting evil as soon as you found out. Just the way they acted was just like ah, I'm evil yeah. suddenly. Like, now the now the audience knows I'm evil, so now the pretending is going to stop kind mm. of thing. Well, you know, this uh, actually this 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 brings up a, a a point is that animation, feature animation, big budget feature animation. Let's put it. Uh, if you compare it to big budget live action, in live action movies, they would never begin shooting a movie until they had a script. Uh, they may they may revise the script. You may, but there's got to be a script. Somebody bought a script and developed a script. But in these uh, big uh, animated movies, they frequently start production without having a finished script. Mm-hmm. And in Frozen, my understanding is that they started out with uh, Elsa being the villain. And somewhere along the way, they changed their mind. And uh, and they made the villain Hans of the Southern Isle. And uh, so when you look at that movie, that character of Hans, there's no foreshadowing. There should be foreshadowing because 15 minutes before the final credits roll, Hans says, he announces that he's a cold-blooded murderer, a sociopath. Uh, he's planned on killing Elsa. He's planned on taking over the throne. And he's had this plan all along. And so if you do what I've done, which is to analyze the thing, I went back after I saw that. I went back and watched all of the scenes that Hans of the Southern Isle was in, every single one of them. I looked at them starting at the beginning of the movie when he comes and first falls into that boat. And uh, there's no foreshadowing, not an instant. And if he had a plan to take over the place, then all of this snow and ice would be something that interrupted his plan. And, and we should at least see him think that. Mm-hmm. Even if he doesn't do anything about it, it's just a glance. It's just a, uh, an expression of comprehension at some point. But that character is basically a ragdoll character all the way up until he announces that he's a cold-blooded murderer, Hmm. which is really, you know, this is not good screenwriting. And uh, and, uh, I don't know. The only explanation for it that I can find is that they changed horses in the middle of the stream, that they had one villain they started with, and somewhere along the way, they changed their mind for whatever reason. That would make sense because I remember hearing that they were going through like draft and draft and draft of this idea, trying to 
trying to exactly. make it, because it was based on the um based on the Snow Queen fairy tale. So I guess they were originally probably planning to have Elsa be the villain or villainess because the fact that that's you know was kind of the case, sort of the case in the actual uh fairy tale that it was based on. But that's you know really when you think about it, like comparing what the fairy tale actually was to what Frozen ended up being, it's completely like it's a completely different story and different characters. That that's right. But they did, you know, uh, Disney did the same thing with Zootopia. Oh, yep, yep. They did exactly the same thing. The, the that, uh, that rabbit, Secretary Rabbit, forget her name, but uh, 15 minutes before final credits, we find out that she's a murderer. Yep, it, and, it was her all along. Yeah, you. but if you go back and you look at uh, the earlier parts of the movie... Go screen, look at all those scenes that she's in. There's just no indication of it. Mm-hmm. And why? I have no idea. You I know, think, I, I think the idea is because they're trying to be, I suppose, clever and and make you think, oh, you'd never suspect her. But uh, it is exactly. But in but in storytelling, there should be foreshadowing. Mm. You know, this is what I mean. You know, okay. You know, whenever you see a, a, a crime that's happened, you know, okay, there was a murder next door in the neighborhood, and the newscasters come out and they interview the neighbors. And the neighbors will sit there and say, well, I always thought there was something a little strange about that guy. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, he was so quiet all the time, and this neighbor, I don't know, he just didn't act like he was going to do something. But what they're looking for is foreshadowing. And, they, and they're saying to themselves, you know, if I had paid a little more attention, I might have been more suspicious of that guy. This is just good storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But animation, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to uh, people that work on these, the big budget ones, I, I, I'll teach at one of the studios or the other, and, and I'll point this out. And what they'll say to me is they'll say, well, Ed, it's animation. As if, as if animation gets a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to story. No. And, and I say, well, story is story is story. And, it, you, you know, there needs to be structure to it. And if you're going to have a villain, then the story needs to contain that all the way through. But I tell you this, we're getting now an increasing number of live action directors coming into animation and we're getting animation directors going into live action. And I believe that all of this will be a net positive uh, effect on feature animation because live action directors are accustomed to working with complete scripts. And animators are accustomed to sort of working it out as they go along and editing in their heads in a way. Mm-hmm. And so you've got two different ways of working, two different ways of making a film. And I believe that both of these ca- uh, camps will learn from each other. And, uh, and I think ultimately you're going to see animated animation, feature animation with more complete scripts at the beginning. I remember when they made uh, the movie uh, Madagascar. Oh, yeah. 
they stopped. They had to stop production on that movie in the middle of it. Huh. Because yeah, because they didn't have an ending. They had the they were able to get the characters out of the zoo and get the characters off to Madagascar, but they didn't know what happened there. And they they figured they'd work it out, you know, by the time they got there. And uh, they didn't work it out. They had to actually stop production. That's what I was told by people who worked on it. And this is the reason why the third act of that movie is so much weaker than the first act. I'd always wondered about that. I hadn't heard about that, uh, that it had yeah. stopped production. Yeah. I got that makes a lot of sense. I got that from a very good source at DreamWorks that they actually stopped production. And I was uh, surprised. I said, no, you're kidding. You know, you just stopped. They said, well, yeah, because they couldn't, they hadn't made up their mind yet. And uh, they had to come up with an ending. So you, you get this feeling, you know, it's, uh, I've heard that on the movie uh, Up, that they really only had a story going to the point where the house is raised into the air with the balloons. And uh, that they just, the whole business about Paradise Valley, they sort of came up with sort of on the fly. That's what I've heard. And probably because the first, somebody decided that the uh, the first half of the movie was so serious and they got nervous because of the budget. They said, we better lighten it up. And so they stuck in all the stuff with the talking dogs. Uh, yeah. I mean, it does happen to even, um, I, th I think the, uh, the, the uh, Takahata movie, um, Princess Kaguya, uh, also had to halt production for similar reasons that mm -hmm. he could. So it happens to, I think the best of uh, animation directors and productions because it's kind of, um, uh, it's part of the process and for better mm -hmm. or worse, reiteration, uh, you know, having uh, revisions and revisions mm -hmm. and revisions of a story is how animation um, kind of gets made. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, I, I think what I've what I've noticed is we're kind of also now talking about um, structure and writing uh, mm -hmm. as, as well, and um, and and I'm kind of thinking, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. But at what point does writing stop and acting begin, and and how much can I mean? Do you think? in a production standpoint different departments can um, can work together to these ends because I mean for just you know as an extreme like how would a color designer um, mm -hmm. take this on board do you think well an animator obviously cannot rewrite the script you're sitting there you've been assigned a, a sequence to, uh, to work on and uh, if the sequence isn't well written, that's not the animator's fault. I mean, you, I, you know, you don't want to get fired. Uh, you don't want to get into a big argument about with them about the, uh, you know, about the, the, the way the scene is structured. If they want you to do what they want you to do, then do it, you know. Uh, but the story that I told at the beginning of our talk about what I learned working off-Broadway, in bad plays, 
that's a situation that animators often face, the same kind of situation. You're given something, you look at it, and uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because it's not well written. It's not well conceived. And so what are you supposed to do? Well, you're the animator, you do the best you can with it. And if you believe in the principles of acting, which are that action, objective, obstacle, then you try to give as much of that to a character as you can uh, without upstaging the whole movie. You don't want to make it a whole movie about this scene. Uh, but you, you realize that maybe the character is in conflict with himself uh, over this. Uh, maybe that's what it is. If there's any way that you can do it, then, you know, without getting into trouble, then, then go ahead and do it. Uh, but you're right. Look, it starts with, and it starts with, it's got to be story. I mean, it is, uh, if you take away animation altogether, what we're finally left with are two people standing on a hilltop telling stories to each other. Animation is an art form for telling a story. If the story isn't there, then an animator cannot fix it. You do the best you can. And what I'm hoping and what I see, especially around the world, I'm seeing better stories coming out. Did you guys get a chance to see Boy in the World? I actually just recently had a chance to... Uh... To get and watch that uh, with my mom. Yeah, what'd you think of it? It was something else. I uh, I was blown away. I think both me and my mom were kind of blown away about how much of the story it was able to tell without. I mean, the characters spoke to each other, but they didn't. You really didn't understand what they were saying, and that was actually kind of a stronger film for it because it was the actions of the characters telling the story. Exactly. Looking for his father. Yeah. Yes, and it was uh, the director of that, Ali Abru, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, forgive me, but uh, he's in Brazil. It's a Brazilian movie. There's a couple of things to mention about that movie. Number one, that movie cost $500,000 to make. Hmm. Only $500,000. Inside Out cost $200 million. Boy in the World cost $500,000 and was made by 15 animators. Whoa. Only 15? Oh, I did not know that. Yes. And it, what they did with the dialogue track in there it, is they, the, the, the script was written in the Portuguese language, but they typed it out backwards. And then they recorded it backwards. So what you're hearing is backward Portuguese. Ah. Yes, you're hearing backward Portuguese. Now, the, the, this is so smart of Ali Abro. So smart. Because what this means is that anywhere in the world, that movie will play. You don't have to understand Portuguese. It'll play anywhere. And... That movie, I, I, for, for, for my money, that's one of the best movies that has made animation in the past couple of three years anyway. 
I mean, I think it's an extraordinary piece of work, uh, especially for, you know, given that, I mean, $500,000, my gosh, you can raise that much money off of Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and, uh, and they've got themselves, number one, it's got a story, and, and, and it's got a story. It's, this is an adult movie is what it is, it boy is. in the world. Although the central character is a boy, he's only seven years old, 10 years old, but he has to go off into the world to find his father who has left home as a migrant worker. And he goes in search of his father. And so the boy has never been off of the farm. And so he's seeing the world for the first time. He's seeing migrant laborers. He's seeing television. He's seeing soldiers. He's seeing factories. He's seeing all the things that we adults have created. We're seeing the world through this boy's eyes. So there's, so the, the, there's an overall story of him and his search for his father, and there are stories within stories about what he sees in the world. And that's why it's an adult movie, because this boy actually is one of the consequences of what we've done as adults. And I, I just think it's extraordinary. And by the way, Ali Abro said something in, in an interview that I thought was really striking. They asked him what he thought about, uh, about uh, the state of animated movies in the world right now. And he said his opinion was that they all look like they were made by the same production house. Hmm. And I understand that because everybody, when I, t I teach all around the world, all kinds of different countries, and I come in and what they want me to do uh, is to explain to them how to do what Pixar does. And I tell them, you know, don't, we've already got a Pixar. Uh, you need to do what you do. I mean, by all means, study Pixar and Disney and DreamWorks for the technique, for the skills, for, uh, uh, for the animation skills. But don't be trying to copy them with story and because their stories often are designed anyway to sell theme parks. And they don't stand on their own the way that a movie like Boy in the World does. Or Chico and Rita. Or, oh, some, love... or some of the movies, uh, Waltz with Bashir. And uh, that comes out of Israel, Ari, Ari Folman. Uh, this is, uh, you know, I think people should make their own stories, make their own movies. See, uh, you don't want to be trying to copy Disney. And, uh, and, 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 and also, we're at a point where, where you guys, those of us sitting here talking together right now, we could get together in somebody's garage with a couple of computers and make a movie. The technology is such that we could do that. Yep. This is an amazing time to be working in animation. It's, we are poised 
for an explosion. There's very little adult-themed animation being made, feature animation. We get adult-themed short animation, but you can't make money with the short animation. That's the problem. You can't make a living with it. Yeah. We need adult-themed feature animation. And the way this is going to happen is we have to get the budgets down. Ali Bro had the right idea, $500,000. He'll make his money back. He'll make a profit on that. Okay? Yeah. yeah, he will make a profit on it. And he's made a good story. And it's one for adults. It is possible to do it. It is. Very different, but they did sort of do that with Sausage Party this year. That was much lower budget than a Pixar movie or whatever, and it did fairly well. So that the only way they could do that was by keeping the budget low, by not paying the animators, as it happens. But well, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think actually that's that's true. I think if you want to make adult animation at the moment, you don't have a choice if you have a big budget or not. Yeah, well... Not paying animators is a favorite activity, and uh, that needs to change also. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, what's happened. I, a lot of, you know, to me, I draw a distinction between animation artists and animation technicians. And many of the schools uh, are turning out what I call animation technicians. And what we need are more animation artists. We, we need more animators that, that really come to grips with the fact that they're telling stories. And, uh, uh, and once again, we come around to, where, to Brad Bird. This is, what, this is the way he talks all the time. He sees animators like that as storytellers. And that's, I think that's the future. It's a, it's, a, it's a very exciting time, and uh, it's breaking out all over the world. We're going to see more of this, I'm sure. I think people are definitely wise to that, and the it's that same thing of like the level of sophistication or technology doesn't matter. People can see through it, and that's how I think um, independent animators like Don Hertzfeld. Uh, mm-hmm. are as big as or as popular and as well loved as, as, as indeed he deserves to be because he understands how to capture an audience and how to clearly um, tell a story and to impart ideas and show uh, I guess as, as you've explained uh, it, uh, try and share uh, I have to be careful about the language I use now um, <laughs> they're the emotions that he kind of feels in a way that uh, comes you know in, in a way that's expressed in a story yes yeah. but it yes. doesn't matter uh, The tech, I mean you look at his films and they're stick figures I mean technically mm-hmm. they're not difficult images to, to, to make it, I, I mean that's kind of doing him a disservice because he does great beautiful looking films as well but you see the point I'm making it's of course, it doesn't you're matter right. if you can see the character's chest uh, breathing. That doesn't. Yeah, and you you're you're absolutely right. You're correct. You, you can I tell you what you can you can have matchstick characters and have a powerful film. Mm. 
It just depends on what what story you want to tell. What what what's on your mind? You know, we were talking earlier about about animators being shamans. That is the genealogy, the roots of of all of this. Is that it all goes back to nomadic tribes in Mesopotamia, a thousand, six thousand years ago, uh, following the herds. And they, they, the herd would get sick or there would be bad weather or something would happen. And the shaman would come out and he'd put a circle in the dirt and paint himself blue. And the tribe would gather around and they'd chant to the animal gods, the weather gods. And the whole point of it was to help the tribe survive, to stay together. And that still is the point of it all, even today. When you animate, when you animate a character, you're talking about how that character is surviving. All of us act to survive. The first thing a baby does when a baby is born is that baby tries to live. And the last thing a person does before they die is they try to live. We are bound together. We're we're hardwired by nature to respond to the effort to survive. And uh, we, and that's what empathy, to, to bring it all full circle, that's what empathy is all about. We're looking for the survival mechanism. A story is always going to be about a character, one person who's going along and then something happens, something that they have to deal with. And they either they either succeed or they fail. The audience wants to see the characters struggling and working to work out something. They want to solve the problem. They want to see, did this work? Did that work? I should do this. I should do that. We're making little file notes in our brains from stories. So we, we, have, we have so many of these movies that, uh, that I see that are only just designed to entertain. That's what they say, you know, entertain. You want to just entertain. Well, there's a reason why we tell stories to each other. And it's a very powerful thing, and it's fundamental to the way we live in the world. And you can use stories simply for commercial purposes, but I think that stories, man, do we need stories today. We need storytellers. We need shamans. The, 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 the world is in a really difficult place. And we need to hear from shamans. We need to hear from artists. It's an artist's job to do this. And uh, it's a privilege, and, and, it's, and it's a job. I'm convinced of it. I, I probably sound like a broken record, but I, I'm... Not at all. Uh, I just I just believe this so much in 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 in, in depth. So no, it's, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. Like if I'd say uh, I'm a I no I'm, I'm sorry I'm kind of stumbling over my words here. So just give me a second. But um, I understand uh, full well the power of storytelling and how it can alter uh, perception and how one behaves in the world. I mean that's kind of how I grew up. I mean I grew up being you know raised by my my father and my mother and my brother and my family and my friends that I've met along the way and my teachers you mm-hmm. know each of them imparting knowledge for me to you know how to survive but the other 
a lot of the, you know, I take what they've taught me and I also take what's, you know, been taught to me through uh, storytelling, whether or not that's been through reading books, watching television or watching movies, you know, and, you know, animated or otherwise. And, you know, basically you take what you see and hear or read from those, from those stories and ideas and those characters and you try best to integrate them into your own life. And I can, I can name a couple of instances where I've say I've, I've seen something happen in a story or read something in a story where it challenged my perception of the world. And that's how I grow. Yep. That's how we all grow. Exactly. You know, Leonardo da Vinci was asked once what was the secret of his genius. And he's, his answer was very telling. He said, knowing how to see. He didn't say knowing how to sculpt or knowing how to paint. He said, it's knowing how to see. And I, to me, artists have a responsibility uh, to see what the rest of the tribe either cannot or will not see. And it isn't always fun. If you're an artist, it doesn't always feel good. In fact, it frequently does not feel good at all. Mm-hmm. You wish it would just go away. But you you have to look at things. You have to see the world for what it is. And then you have to talk to the tribe about what you see. That's the shamanistic nature of, of an artist. It's the shaman, for, especially for, uh, for animators. And I, I think it's an honor, a privilege. I think that uh, you own it. You've got to believe, if you're an artist of any kind, you've got to believe that if you draw a circle in the dirt, the tribe will come. You've got to know in your heart that you belong in the middle of the circle and that the tribe needs to hear what you have to say because it's important. It's a, it's a privilege to do that. It really is. And also I think the audiences, you know, audiences now are probably going back to what uh, the generational thing that Yvonne was talking about earlier with regard to the Alan Alders um idea that uh, there was something generational about his acting habits um i think audiences are really uh perceptive to these things and they have an intuition for good storytelling as well because someone who might not be able to tell a story can sure as hell sniff out a bad one and tell you (laughs) that it's not working even if they can't you know, break down structurally why this part should be healed. It doesn't, ma- doesn't matter because it was not speaking to them. They exactly. Know. No, you're right. People, you, you know, you should never condescend to your audience. You should never talk down to them. <laughs> when you're animating a character, you should never play a character that is less smart than you. As uh, We're all of us the same. We're all equal. It's just that some of us are better storytellers than others. And, uh, but we, all of us are exactly the same. I, I think it, you know, it's, uh, uh, 
you know, I in in my work as an actor, I uh, I often was cast as a, a character that's not too smart, <laughs> and. Uh, and the trick to playing those kind of characters is to not play them dumb. You play them smart. And because a smart uh, somebody who's not too smart doesn't think that they're not too smart. Exactly. <laughs> I, I guess the uh, the ultimate thing is like the, the stupid person is constantly trying to uh, fight against the objective that they're stupid to prove that they're not. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I've seen a lot of um, at least with uh, some certain uh, television, animated television programs on like a lot of, like the mainstream channels, like uh, a lot of the ones that are getting uh, a lot of backlash from their uh, their viewership is the fact that they they aren't doing that. They are they are def- they are intentionally making the carers seem a lot more uh, unintelligent than they should than they should be. So and that's um, you know that's yeah. dividing the audience between like okay, well should we you know is should we bash on this program for that or is it you know expect should we expect more from it or is this just the way it is because this is how the people of this particular uh television channel feel that you know these particular animated programs should be presented to their audience and mm-hmm. it's really just it's, if, if that is the case if that is how they feel that is that's rather disappointing no you're 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 right i mean this is uh uh it because it's frustrating sometimes to to watch it uh, I, you know, I, I have difficulty watching a lot of television uh, shows because of this. You know, they, they put laugh tracks in there too. Yeah. On some some of these shows, you know, and somebody yeah, comes in and says, "Yeah, somebody somebody walks into the room and says, oh, I forgot my hat,' and the and the audience cracks up and like it's uh, the funniest thing anybody ever heard." And you go, whoa, you know, my eyes are rolling, and I'm saying, you know, that's just not funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose also, though, uh, because of the way it's set up, television's probably going to be the place that we see innovation before film, because a single episode of a TV show um, costs less. So you can afford, literally... You can afford to push, you know, to push things where the network might not be yeah. so sure uh, and innovate within mm-hmm. within that sort of slightly smaller, slightly uh, on on average cheaper arena. Yeah, 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 yeah. Seeing that transition too, like uh, tied to that with um, how. Like not just with rest regular broadcast television, but also with like uh, groups like Netflix and uh, other streaming sites, which are trying to incorporate their own their own content and uh, doing it more like a what must I say serialized yeah. television shows. And that right. um, because they don't have a network breathing down their neck of saying what's right or what's wrong, then they can experiment a little bit more. Like I mean, um, with uh, the recent Voltron series, I think that's one of the things that they've been able to. You know, at least with that in the in the regards to that particular show's development, they've been able to kind of experiment with different kind of things that they can do with that particular program, and we'll see how that plays out in the when they get their next season up and running. But that's something I noticed immediately with the fact that uh, with that show in particular and how it yeah. was uh, presented through that uh, that particular uh, way. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, uh, you know, the, the wonderful thing is that we have. 
now because of technology. We have new ways of seeing, of distributing and exhibiting uh, all kinds of entertainment, including animation. And uh, we've got we've got now because of things like. Uh, Kickstarter, and there's different ways to raise money. We have new production models. Uh, it's it's everything is different. It's not like it was in Walt Disney's day. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, really a, a important when uh, people come out of animation school these days. You know, they're likely to to encounter uh, the type of production model. Do you guys, are you, I'll mention Chico and Rita. Remember, mm-hmm. okay, but do you know how that, that movie, what they did was it was based in, uh, the production office was in, uh, based in uh, Barcelona, I think, in Spain. And, and they raised the money from different countries uh, to make the movie. And then in each country, they hired animators from that country. So you had, I think there was nine or 10, maybe even 11 different countries. And the animators were all working from home. There was, um, there, I know there were animators from the Isle of Man in the, the British Isles, but yeah. I don't think, it, te- yeah. don't think yeah. it technically counts as the UK. Well, yeah. sort of. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think that, that is actually kind of the norm with, uh, with European uh well, Cartoon Saloon stuff. Yeah, Cartoon is... Saloon is another example where they have animators in Belgium, in France, and, yeah, exactly where, wherever wherever they can wherever they can find them. Um, but it, it used to be that that the career arc for someone coming into animation was that they would go to school, they get out of animation school, and at some point they just went and got in the employment line over Disney. Or, you know, everybody just dreamed of having a job at Pixar. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that that now the there's so many different production models and so many different ways of raising money and different ways of watching this stuff that it's, uh, it, it's likely that, that uh, you might be living in one country and working with an animation studio in another. It's quite likely this is your job. Oh yeah, it's 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 certainly, and also it's kind of interesting to see um, mm-hmm. the uh, animators and artists who actually end up leaving, uh, you know, castles like uh, like Pixar um, mm-hmm. to create their own studios, like um, like the guys at Tonko House who were with Pixar for fifteen or so years, I think, and then they obviously began to realize that. For whatever yeah. they weren't finding what they what they wanted at Pixar and um, Ed, I, I I really sorry didn't leave at any point. I'm aware that we're sort of we're running on. Hmm. <laughs> That's okay. It's a good conversation. Okay, good, good. Okay, I just I just wanted to check no. that we're not keeping you from any. Oh no, I I, I you know I don't want to I don't want to uh, to to bore your listeners. No, I think we do that first. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I, you know, I love, I, I, I love animation. I love animators, and uh, I think I believe that animation is the most underused and underappreciated art form of the 21st century. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that it has been since Walt Disney's day, animation has been largely commercialized. It's been feature animation has been used to sell product. And but in the meanwhile, the technology has developed so that you have computer animation. There's now we have all the computers have become so fast. And now the technology is actually ahead of what's really being done with animation. There's there's more now. We can do more, and and we should. It's time. It's uh, we're Paul. We're the the industry is poised to transition, and it's such an exciting thing. Yeah, and going back to what you said earlier, the fact that you know not only is this technology advancing, it's also like certain bits of it are becoming more widely available. Like I can tell you, um, like I sometimes if all I have to do is just like type in just animation on say like a, a video search site like YouTube or VMO, and I am amazed about the uh, sheer amount of uh, content that I find. I mean, not only do you find uh, short films like say someone put together in uh, for an animation like you know project for a college class mm -hmm. or even something that they. Like they see something that they're inspired by, like uh, uh, a video game, a television show, or a book, or what have you. Mm -hmm. And if they've got the chops to do it, then they're going to go ahead and animate it, or do like an, in their own vision or their own style. And I am my jaw hits the floor about what the kind of stuff that I see and the kind of creativity that I see in the character animation and you know effects and you know so much more. And mm -hmm. the fact that you know someone was able to like just. One person or like a small crew of people just kind of got, like you said, get together in their garage and it's like, you know, let's just make a thing. Mm -hmm. And, and think, things like crowdfunding as well. Yeah. Are bringing people, yeah. people together to create things from all over the place. And Yeah, and also crowdfunding also proves that there is a mm -hmm. yearning for this sort of thing outside mm -hmm. of the commercial obligations of uh, big studios because people want the thing they want the movie or the tv show or the story you know the stories mm -hmm. um rather than all of the tie-in you know cereal box promotions and things like that which are yeah tie and just and just wait until uh, virtual reality actually catches hold i mean we haven't talked about that at all but uh many of the i know a lot of people that are working around the clock on on that and uh when that kicks in, when it actually becomes affordable and accessible to the general public, it's, uh, it's going to change everything. Uh, it's going to create even more opportunities. Mm -hmm. I've only had a limited experience with VR, but what little experience I did have, is it's, it was, it was mind-blowing. And I'm very much looking forward to see how uh, animators uh push that particular new uh, mode of yeah well, well they're trying to figure out how to tell stories with it you know I participate each year in the FMX uh, animation event in Stuttgart Germany mm -hmm. and uh, yeah so I was at FMX and uh, there were several speakers having to do with storytelling and virtual reality. And, and it's clear that nobody really knows right now how to do this because classic storytelling from a film 
or a stage play or whatever is you have uh, a writer uh, and actors who are showing an audience what it is that they think is important for them to see. They're showing this. That's the nature of storytelling is it's selective. So the problem is the challenge. What happens if, like, for example, if the, if it's Romeo and Juliet, if the audience does not want to see the balcony scene, if the audience, the audience is only one person with a headset and the audience says, no, I don't want to be here watching this dull balcony thing. I want to go off over here into the castle. And so nobody really has figured this out. They're coming up with clever ways to keep drawing the attention of the, uh, uh, you know, of the, of the viewer, so the audience, so to make them look where they want them to look. But they haven't figured out yet how to do this with, with story. My guess is, this is just my guess between me and you, is that is that storytelling in virtual reality is going to be something like like you have a house, and in this house there's been a murder, mm-hmm. and the audience can do can go into any room of the house with the butler or with the daughter or with the husband or whatever, wherever they go all of the characters are dealing with the same central event, but they're each seeing it from a different perspective. Ah. So to me, that's probably the form that virtual reality storytelling will will take. Otherwise, I I don't see how you're going to do it because the audience gets to go where they want to go. If if they can't do that, then you don't have virtual reality. Yeah, if yeah. they're going to experience this story, they need to do it from a... And it's not really holding their hand, but it's just kind of like, you know, it's like, I know, it's, it, they, I've seen this trick happen with, like, uh, video game sequences where it's just like, they kind of, you're kind of railroaded into a particular story sequence. Yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly the, uh, the the thing that people say, isn't it? They say, oh, I feel like I'm on rails with this. Mm-hmm. I feel like I don't have the illusion, you know, like, the, the yeah. free will is not here. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're going to experience a, a story told by somebody else, there's only so much room you have yeah, for wandering this is, around. This is the funny <laughs> thing that I think about this stuff is like, in a way, like perhaps the Disney Imagineering team is the people to talk about, is the people to talk to, because no matter what you're doing, if you're telling a story, it's going to have, you know, it's, it's, and if it's a traditional story, it's not going to be a choose your own adventure. You're going to have one ending because the ending is often the conceit of of a story, mm-hmm. um, right? So how do you trick you know how do you trick your your audience into thinking they're not on uh, the it's a small world like you know little <laughs> and they yeah. you know you, you're going to you, you can't really avoid that but the trick is to make them feel like they're making their own choices. Mm-hmm. That is the yeah. Case. Well, they'll work it out. I think it, you know, it will. Like I say, there's some very, very, very smart people that I know who are working on this. They're trying, trying to make it work, and they, and and they will. And also, the headsets are going to become more like Ray Charles's glasses. You know, uh, there'll come a point where they're just like sunglasses that you put on, and uh, it'll be easy and uh, and uh, inexpensive. And that's what we're all waiting for. <laughs> yeah. 
One day, one day. One day, one day. This is your generation. It's on your watch. This is going to happen. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Before we close things up, I uh, would we'll open up the uh, chat for any questions. And I think, Dan, you said you had a few. So if you want to yeah, add that, it's all yours. I had a couple of things I wanted to ask. I don't really, I think there might be a kind of a theme sort of running through both of them. Um, the first is basically, have you seen Anomalisa, Ed? I have, yeah. Because I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Did you, did you like the movie? Um, do you know what? I'm being very honest. I don't know if I liked the movie. <laughs> I was I was certainly um, taken with the technology, and uh, it was very involving. Um and I admired it. I'm not sure if it's something which I could say I loved. Uh, that's kind of my response to it. Well, I can tell you that in terms of performance, the acting in it is excellent uh, and subtle and consistent. So the, the performances are quite good. <clears throat> I don't, you know, it's one of those uh, movies that probably could have been shot in live action. Uh, and I always wonder when I look at it, movie, whether it's stop motion or whatever it is, you know, why did they do it in this medium? And uh, Anomalisa has, uh, well, you know, it has the puppets making love and stuff like this. So there's a lot of technological things there that are really fascinating to watch. And uh, but I, and I like it that it was very adult. Uh, I liked it that you've got a central character that's having a nervous breakdown. And, uh, and we're in the middle of it. So I, I liked Anomalisa. I, I watched the movie probably 15, 20 times uh, because I did an analysis of it. And uh, I, at first I didn't, at the beginning, when I first started watching it, I wasn't crazy about it, I'll be honest with you. But the more that I watched it, the more it grew on me. And uh, the more I could appreciate what they were trying to do um, but it, it'll be interesting the, that that movie was originally written as a stage play you know mm. and uh, and not only was it a stage play it was written as a sound play in other words it was designed to be played in the dark the audience would sit in a darkened theater and could not see the actors on stage they could only hear them so all of this was in the imagination. That was the original script. And they actually staged it like that a couple of times. Uh, um, and then the script was thrown in a drawer uh, until it showed up all these years later in uh, uh, stop motion. Um, but the development process of it was, uh, was, was really ragged. It uh, it never was conceived to be a stop motion movie in the first place. It was a and it even wasn't even really adapted. It was because they used the same script, so it was uh, it just they took the existing script and then did, told the story with stop motion in a different way so that you could see it. I, I thought it was really interesting. I'd like to see them do more. Um, yeah, but, actually, yeah. I, I think they they are yeah. using. A similar kind of production process on the next movie, uh, that production house where they have a script. Mm -hmm. And I th and, and it's interesting you mentioned that it was uh, 
that it began life as as a as a as, a, as an audio play because mm-hmm. in TV animation, um, the uh, the the production process uh, there's a part where you get a thing called a radio play, which is as mm-hmm. you'd imagine just the audio of the of the of the episode. Yep, and um, and that kind of uh, the the attention paid uh, paid to radio plays nowadays is is kind of key um, in productions like Archer or Rick and Morty, where mm-hmm. a, an episode won't go into production until the radio play is is sound. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's really interesting, also Ed, that you mentioned. Uh, because what you brought up was actually going to be my second question. Uh, and that was the fact that Anomalisa actually could have conceivably been live action. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there would have been uh, a kind of uh, visual effect with everyone's face uh, being the same. You know, maybe people would have had you know, some some yeah. sophisticated makeup or something like that. But I, I understand your point that there's nothing, um, apart from a dream sequence uh, in the middle of the film, there's nothing really which, as you said, is could uh, could not have conceivably been shot with actors in live action. Yeah, for less money. And so... I, I, kind of, I guess kind of what I'm asking is, is that? Do you? Th- I mean, personally, do you think that's important? Do you think that animation has a responsibility to do something that the medium can only do, or is? I mean, yeah. Is is there is there a point to that? Do you think? Well, I personally think that you know, animation. You can defy the laws of physics. There's things you can do with it that you cannot do with uh, live action. I mean. You can use special effects and stuff, but uh, when I—that was one of the things about about Boy uh, Boy in the World—was you could not have made that movie with live action. Hmm. It had to be animation, and to me, I look for that. I appreciate that very much, and uh, you know, it's a. What is that? You know, there's a short. A couple of the animators from Pixar made a short about a cowboy, um, a short animation that's getting a lot of play these days. I see it online. Uh, have you seen this? I, oh I, yeah, uh, borrowed time. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's extremely well made. But my first reaction was that when I saw it, I said, "Well." you could have done this live action. Why do they animate it? And it's, I'm sure they animated it because they're animators and they did a very, very, very good job. There's, I mean, an excellent job, a beautiful job. Let's be candid. It's beautiful to look at this thing. However, it could have been shot live action and, uh, with, and nothing would have been lost. I think that's maybe just the nature of the story that they were telling. The fact that it could lend itself to both animation and live action mm-hmm. performance. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, I have a kind of uh, 
informal theory about adults accepting animation and mm -hmm. i've mentioned it on the podcast before that part of me thinks that animation won't be culturally accepted in in america or casually speaking the west um by mainstream audiences until they're able to go and see a movie which actually could have been conceivably done in live action because mm -hmm. part of me feels i mean this is probably a bias that I, I have personally as an animator but part of me feels that that's kind of a true acceptance if because then the choice is purely in the medium and not mm -hmm. as uh loosely speaking a gimmick mm -hmm. well you know i mean this you you know brad brad bird says uh you know when he was in the same interview where he was talking about consequences you know he said animation the characters are able to defy gravity and all that, which is great, he said, but at some point, characters have to face the consequences of their behavior, and now you're dealing with reality, so you've got the non-reality of the animation coming up against the reality of what's necessary for human behavior. So it's uh, it, this has to be resolved by, by the storyteller, uh, one way or the other. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's got to be an educational curve, and the public, the public, the animation animated movie going public still needs to be taught that animation can work for adults. And uh, I mean, this is one of the good things about your show is that uh, is that this is what you you guys talk about, is it, uh, you know, animation for adults. And uh, you're at the beginning of a of a movement, I think, and uh, you're riding it. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's very encouraging to hear. Yeah. Hope we to see sure that hope wave, so. That wave rise up and get some more get some more traction with the world at large, and hopefully we'll be we'll be riding along with it. At least I certainly hope so. <laughs> well, you guys are terrific. I mean, I I've. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, this conversation, even though we had technical glitches. I've had a lot of fun talking to you. I, I would I would like to do it again sometime, you know. Absolutely. And, uh, I'm happy to have you again. And yeah, you know, there's always movies to talk about. There's always stuff, and uh, and I'm I'm always uh, happy to do it. Like I said uh, earlier, I'm just about to move to Lisbon, uh, Portugal. And uh, the you know the, the the internet works there too. Yep. So, <laughs> hey, so let's do international. it. Yep, let's do it. We'll we'll go look ahead, and we'll see if you ever uh, find something else you want to come on talk about. Just by all means, reach out to us, and we'd be more than happy to have you on again. Anytime. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. And I, I've just had it, and uh, I've just had a great time—a great time talking with you. Thank and you. Uh, let's uh, make this the uh, the beginning of a relationship rather than the end of one. You know what? I yeah. wholeheartedly agree. Okay, right. bravo! All right, so we're going to close out today's episode. So thank you very much for tuning in. And if you want to check out more of our podcast episodes or the rest of our content for our website, check it out at animationforadults.com. 
and you can follow the podcast on podcast.com, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you want to find any of us on our social media, well, you can just go ahead and give that uh, right now. Chris, where can we find you? Uh, Mr. Chris Dore on Twitter. All right. And Dan? You can find me at Hamu on Twitter. Ed, is there anywhere we can find you on social media? Yes, indeed. I'm on Facebook. Awesome. Thank you. Come friend me. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And you can find me on Twitter at Fail2Ninja. All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. And we'll see you next time on Episode 61. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.